Welcome to No Challenges Remaining, the first edition of the long-awaited, highly anticipated NCR Book Club. I am Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen to discuss Venus Envy by L. John Wertheim. Courtney, great to be here. I'm excited for this episode. We've been talking about wanting to do this for a long time. Yeah, I feel like this is, you know, like two or three years in the making in terms of not just doing NCR Book Club, which I think we've wanted to do just... I know for myself, selfishly and just personally, because I just wanted to give myself like a little bit of extra motivation to read um, all of the tennis books that I've accumulated and um, and stuff like that and kind of give myself accountability, which is a lot of what a book club is. A mm-hmm. lot of it is mm-hmm. just peer pressure. accountability. Yeah. yeah, peer pressure of like, you got to read it. Um, otherwise, you can't drink wine with the ladies. <laughs> and, and then specifically Venus Envy, um, just because obviously we know John. John's a friend. He's my former coworker when I was freelance at SI. Lovely man. Adore him. John knows that. Everybody, I think, knows that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But um, yeah, I've been looking forward to just discussing Venus Envy because I just think that it's a significant book in a lot of ways because it's the last, I really do believe this and we'll go into it, but the last book of its kind, I think, that we that we might see in a long while in tennis, which is like an almost all-access pass uh, behind the scenes of a single season in women's tennis. And obviously Venus Envy focuses on the year 2000. Um, and um, it, I've I just found it thoroughly entertaining. It was, it was so fun to read. It's probably honestly my fourth or fifth time reading this book. I just had, it's so fun. It's such a, it's a really easy read. It's, you know, it's short. It's like 200. My hardcover copy is like 220 pages, maybe tops. Yeah, it's, same. It's, it's not long. It's, it's easy. It's a, it's a fun year. It's a pretty tight. I mean, compared to one of the other books we talked about doing hard courts uh, by John Feinstein, which is, Similarly, one season, although it covers both tours, but it's twice the length. It's like 450 pages. And so, dense. I mean, and, I mean, dense I think, yeah. and hard courts is great. And we'll, I think we're doing hard courts, aren't we? Yeah, aren't yeah, we? That, that's yeah. the plan. Yeah. So we're going to eventually do hard courts. But I just, you know, for me, John's writing on tennis was a big kind of entry point into kind of the what I would consider for myself, this modern era of tennis. Just kind of a more, yeah. um, you know, using his reportering reporter access and everything but having a personality in it understanding when the salacious tea was just hilarious and absurd um and 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 writing about it accordingly just the little quips and puns and you know he it he's just so easy to read i've always found with john so it applies to the book as well we did a second episode for this book which with john john was grateful enough to uh, gracious enough to come on and grateful. <laughs> I don't know if he was grateful. Yeah, man. He was grateful at all. <laughs> gracious, yeah, but uh, John was gracious enough to come on and talk about Venus Envy, which is by no means the pearl of his career in his eye. But he he was a good sport at talking about it and indulging us with it. It's his first book and start of a long career. But yeah, I agree with you. I think John has been sort of the you know the definitely the voice of the people in tennis in the last several decades now. I mean, I was reading him, you know right around when this book came out, I think back then he was already doing his SI.com mailbag then, or maybe CNN.SI.com back then. And yeah, he was, uh, he was there and, and seeing him and just seeing his flourishes, there's a little, a few more show offy words in this book that I noticed. Uh, but otherwise it's still the same John and still, uh, 
a lot of fun to read. And it's, it's his enthusiasm and his sort of sense of fun really comes through the whole way. So uh, we should also say, we were talking about this before, this is not just, the title is a bit misleading maybe or misdirecting and that it's not really... It's not a, about penises. Or, <laughs> not not often, is it? No. Well, but, it's... Yeah. Well, eh, well, okay. There's a couple <laughs> Russian ones, but it's... Uh, yeah, it is about the whole tour and the ecosystem and it's really an ensemble cast in this book, which is hard to do in a book, really. I mean, like... Yeah. And, and Hardcourts and other books on tour do the similar thing, but it's something that when, in my talks, with you know, because I would like to write a book someday and talking to people about ideas for it, they always, like, really steer you towards having one or two, like, really central driving characters in a book, or maybe three tops. But, like, the John really goes full ensemble and I think pulls it off really well. Well, it's an, it's an incredible ensemble that he gets to work with, right? The year is 2000. And you're talking about a very, very young group of of WTA stars and, and a time when women's tennis was really eclipsing men's tennis in terms of the headlines. And so you just had this kind of amazing cast of characters in obviously Venus and Serena, Anna Kornikova, Lindsay Davenport, Martina Hingis, Jennifer Capriotti, Mary Pierce, Monica Seles, like all of these players are in the mix and all have their own stories and they're all incredibly compelling in their own right. I mean, obviously every single one of them like deserves their own kind of career retrospective book in a lot totally. of ways, but but to to kind of balance all that and to really I mean, what just really blew me away you know, reading the book and every single time that I do read it, and this applies again to like, you know, Courts of Babylon and, and you know, John Feinstein's book and uh, Michael Michaud. It's just the access that that John was able to get to to get so many of these behind the scenes stories and to get very, very unfiltered, shockingly unfiltered at times, thoughts and opinions from the players about each other, which that specifically players talking honestly and openly about other players is something that just does not exist right now in in either the men's or women's game but definitely not in the women's game like everyone is so siloed and it just doesn't want to talk about anybody else and it's really frustrating sometimes it has i have to say (laughs) it has happened one time in the past 15 years and it was on episode, I think, 226 of No Challenges Randy with Nick Kyrgios. And it, like, <laughs> knocked over the whole damn sport when, like, Nick Kyrgios and just hit little old Nick Kyrgios, like, unseated Rome player, you know, is out there talk, saying what he feels about other, you know, players who he's played against. And people are shook. Like, and, and Venus Envy is kind of full of that kind of level it's of revelation. Of that. And, and that's in, what in all the old books way. were yeah. like. It makes you realize, right? like, how starved you are today in a lot of ways. For this, when you come across uh, the, yeah, as the kids would say, the, the tea that's piping hot. But right. I, I want to I read, set up a little bit of framework, just a passage from the intro of the book. This sort of gives the sort of raison d'etre for why he's writing about this era, what made this era of women's tennis special. So here's Sean. At a time when reality-based entertainment is the rage, the tour's rude brood has made women's tennis the ultimate cinema verite sport, equal parts March Madness and Survivor. As in an 11-month soap opera, tensions mount from week to week, loyalties shift, families splinter and come together, feuds escalate, characters fade in and out, fortunes fluctuate, careers are made and broken. It's primetime fair, except for the w- that on the WTA tour, the episodes are more outrageous and the plotlines more surreal. Like any successful serial, 
women's tennis has a delectably rich cast of characters. Two proud and athletic sisters weaned on the game in an L.A. ghetto battle skepticism, scorn, and racism as they try to fulfill the pronouncements of their bombastic Svengali, who may or may not be insane. The crafty, undersized former Eastern European who clings desperately to her top ranking as she slays opponents with her guile and her sharp tongue. The luminous Russian Bond girl who hauls in a small country's GMP in endorsements but is yet to win a tournament. An affable but tough-talking California girl who just wants to be a jock in a culture that demands sex appeal. There's the requisite tragic heroine, a former top player who was stabbed by a deranged fan, lost her father to cancer, and labors like Sisyphus to regain her touch. And there's a psychologically fragile French-slash-Canadian-slash-American trying to become known for something other than her abusive, manipulative father. The end result is a constellation of stars that most sports would kill for. So oh, that's sort of the book proposal oh, right there. And he and oh, John and John nails it. And it's true. I mean, like, and I think we've talked about it before in the show. This is the moment where I sort of started caring about women's tennis. I mean, I first got into women's tennis following uh, Venus Williams's run in the 97 U.S. Open, but kind of got more into it in the next few years um, and was originally a big Williams sisters fan. And as I started winning titles uh, and Grand Slam titles, I got more and more into the sport. And yeah, this, but this sort of this shows the sort of richness. And this was really in a lot of ways, I think this was the real moment for the first time when women's tennis was the show. And it also came, we can, and this comes up sometimes in the book, came at a pretty low watermark for the men in terms of their appeal broadly. And the women really capitalized on that and had uh, through a lot of luck and a lot of really skillful marketing and good storytelling from people like John really had a, a big moment and uh, really, I think vaulted. And this kind of moment is what, you know, because when this book was started being written or at least this season, only one slam had equal prize money in 2000. It was just the U.S. Open. And so, you know, I think those sort of, these sort of moments really do matter for getting women's tennis on the footing it is now. And I think in a lot of ways, this era built the foundation, which the sport still thrives upon today. It was sort of a second important wave after the, obviously, original nine did the real foundational work. But yeah, they I mean, showed that it could really be just as big, if not bigger. This is when the women were truly dwarfing the men for the first time. Yeah, I think that that last point, I think, is absolutely right. I mean, you think about the eras of, you know, of women's tennis in terms of just the evolution taking and stepping aside from the 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 discussion of like the actual X's and O's of the product on the court. But obviously you have like Billy and, and the founding of, of the tour uh, being very significant, obviously battle of the sexes and all that. Then you have Chrissy and Martina taking the torch and kind of elevating the respectability of the tour, but they didn't necessarily dwarf the guys because the no. guys still had McEnroe and Connors and, you know, all that sort of in, and Borg. And so it was kind of like tennis, but that was like the rock star phase of tennis, I think mm -hmm. at that point. Um, and then I think that, yeah, from there, obviously you had the Steffi years and, and you had all of that, but really, I think you're right. I mean, I wouldn't put the Steffi era necessarily separate, you know, I'm like, okay, then there was tennis and then I think this era of of Serena and Venus and Lindsay and Cap and 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 then and obviously the Bel Kornikova and then the Belgians coming up behind all that sort of stuff. Like this is where tennis turned glam. So it went from rock star to kind of like this different level of of glamorous. Went Hollywood. Yeah, I went Hollywood. That's a good that's a good way to put. It. I one of my favorite little asides is that Anna Kornikova was on TRL. Yeah. Which I don't know if the children know TRL, but like I, I read that and I howled. Oh, when she like, gives oh Carson Daly a watch, I was loving yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. I freaking love that because that's a big deal back in the day too. Yeah, you look at that and you're like, wow, like that is that is different level, right? Like we don't see that currently in 
with 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 tennis kind of globalizing and therefore more stars coming from more different countries and no longer is there like a monopoly really over the stars from any single country especially big market countries like the US I mean let's face it when the US like dominated the rankings you're talking about a different market force yeah. than you know for example Belgium you know, the top two players are from Belgium. That's right. just economics. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I think that you're right in that way in terms of just like how significant this generation was. And and I do think that it's accurate as well, that that it's still the ushering in of – and Anna, Anna Kornikova is a big part of this book and she's a big part of our podcast, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> we talk about her a lot on this show. <laughs> she's we, NCR has weirdly become a, Kor, a Kornikova life safe zone. Like, well, did like, you see what what came out <laughs> just today? Tumani Carroll wrote a, a column defending Kornikova. Oh, was like, that today? That I was, thought that I was an that, old piece he did. No, no, no. I think that was ah. that came out today. Oh, okay. I haven't and read it yet. So let me let me click on it just to the date. Hopefully, yeah, March twenty sixth. Oh, that was yesterday. So yeah, March twenty sixth. Wow. Yesterday, okay. As of recording this, so yeah, justice so, I mean, for Anna Kay. He actually was. I was talking to Tumani about it, and he was saying that he re-downloaded the ebook of Venus Envy to review for this. Uh, this piece because Anna's a big character in here, and yeah, and she was one of our, you know, one of my at least ten most important women in tennis history when we did that list, uh, that show a year ago, I guess now. Yeah, uh, and I did not disavow your your take no, there. I no. like, I I was like, yeah, that's fair. I mean, I you know, so so this is a significant era, and so to kind of have this as the snapshot for the book, as this really wonderful snapshot of just like all of the when it was still messy, I guess yeah. is quite. I don't want to say lovely, but I like mess. I mean, I do and I don't. I I will say this. Like you were saying before about how you got, came into – this is around the time when you became like a tennis head. Yeah. And, this, and in contrast, this is around the time that I stopped being a tennis head. Yeah. Because you were a Steffi fan too. And I was a Steffi fan and, and even before that. And, uh, and I what I didn't like about this era is precisely what – now, when I read this book, I find thoroughly enjoyable, but also it still ruffles my feathers. And obviously, this philosophy Im- informs how I go about my job nowadays. I don't like the gossip. I don't like the tea. I don't like that necessarily that the women were getting headlines and that the tabloids were following their love lives and that that is that all of the non on court stuff was the reason why women's tennis was so popular that it was just kind of this reality show yeah yeah, this reality yeah the og reality show you know and you know how i feel about reality shows yeah, i do <laughs> so i i really didn't i didn't respond well to that at the time i was like oh my gosh like i just want to watch the tennis and it's embarrassing and da 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 and you know and nowadays like with insider with wt insider for example one of the big when we discussed kind of our mission statement and what it was going to be when i was first hired it's literally in black and white that that you know we don't focus on that stuff. We are about the on court product. We are concerned with forehands and backhands and statistics and coaches, yeah. coaches and psychology and how and the why. And I we do not report on any of that stuff because I don't like it. Like I I feel like it degrades the product. But that being said, I also understand that when you do when you do have those things, people care, and. I still grapple with this like every day of of trying to figure out like how to reconcile those two things. Yeah. But I feel like like Venus Envy really kind of touches on maybe the ideal time of where both of these things were at the peak because the quality was really good, obviously, on court, the tennis. The tennis was great, yeah. The tennis was great, but then also you had these like 
just absurd personalities and situations and gossip and tea and slagging and, right. you know, war of words. So, you know, combined, that's a pretty, that's a pretty tough thing to, to turn down. No, it was, it's, it definitely is peak in a lot of ways. And, and John writes it so well. And just so there's so many things that are like little asides in the book that just like leave you wanting more. Like yeah. it, in a way that's, and I, and I think I said on the, I did a long thing for racket, uh, like 20,000 something words on uh, Monique Vealy, who I, I think I first heard of or first like definitely like re-remembered through John mentioning her like in passing three times in this book like she yeah there's so many different other tangents you could go on and so some other players who maybe get short shrift like arancha and conchita martinez are both like top five players in this year i think at least at certain points in the year and they don't get covered much at all um but they also weren't really thematically fitting with what he was talking about almost all these players would be a great standalone book and hopefully they all will be at some point or another i mean like any i mean like even like the like the tell-all like especially with her you know second career too and the the, I guess the third career, depending on how you count them, like, like imagine like an all like Hingis book. It could be amazing, right. like the Hingis yeah. like True Sam book, or like Capriati was a very small part of this book. Like you know, she could be in here more and more. I would or have the Lindsay's sisters. book. Like yeah. Lindsay knows everything. I mean, that's what's clear <laughs> when you read Venus Envy, and it continues to this day. And I think that John captures Lindsay's like whole personality so well in the book but like Lindsay is the person that knew all the gossip she's the source <laughs> she's the source because she was the one that everybody liked and wasn't in it necessarily yeah. for the gossip she just you know happened to be sitting in a lobby and witnesses the most absurd Anna Kornikova moment like ever and it's like what mm -hmm. in the world in that way I mean I would love just to like I just want Lindsay to like spill all her tea in a book. So can we work? I'm just being like, <laughs> I think. Like, look, I think she already spilled a lot of her tea to John. I think John took care of a lot of her true. tea already in this book. <laughs> we, do you want to work our way through this because Lindsay is the first chapter, so it makes sense if we're talking about her. This is a year in tour. Is the sort of gimmick behind this book, which is a very common framework in a lot of other books, including ones we'll talk about, like John Feinstein, or even like going back to Grace Lichtenstein, her book, uh, which is really like the OG like women's tennis tour book. Yes. Um, amazing. If you book. haven't, I mean, tr please go find a try to copy. find it find a used copy it's it's not necessarily easy to find it's not on an ebook i've talked to grace about this and like mm -hmm. i was like offered to help her at some point get it as an ebook but so far no luck with that people need to know it's so good it's great so grace yeah. Lichtenstein, it's called a long way baby and yeah it's great uh but it's sort of the, it was about the tour in 1973 and so this is a book in about the tour in 2000 there's not really been a great year on tour book that's sort of embedded in the tour like this since so, uh, yeah, so Lindsay Davenport is the first character, and she's introduced as this sort of wholesome all-American girl as, with, with a bit of an edge to her, for sure. And, Courtney, you, were, you messaged me as you were starting to reread this, <laughs> that she, a very quick parallel came up for you. Why don't we just get into that? Yes. Who, 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 who is the current Lindsay Davenport in your mind? The Lindsay Davenport of the current era, in my mind, is Ashley Barty. Just like affable, just wants to play the game, doesn't really want to deal with all of the, you know, the 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 glam side of things and all of the extracurriculars. She just wants to hit tennis balls and win titles. That's what she wants. That's what makes her happy, but kind of does all the other stuff, understanding that that's what a professional does. And so she tries to check those boxes. But, um, but at the same time, behind the scenes, like everybody loves Ash, people who don't quote unquote love Ash, like they like Ash and respect Ash. There's just like never I've literally never met somebody on the tour that 
had anything negative to say about Ash Barty. And, you know, and, and that being said, like Ash, Ash is not a pushover and she's not somebody that doesn't have opinions. And she can give it right back if she ever feels like she can give it right back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, reading about Lindsay, especially there's a scene where after Lindsay wins the Australian open, she has to do the photo shoot, the champions photo shoot in a boat on the Yara. I'm sure everybody's seen similar. I think Wozniacki did a similar one uh, two years ago, three years ago. And uh, apparently John is like with her in the boat or like next to her. And she's just cursing it the whole time, like under her breath. She's like, I can't believe I freaking have to do this. The mi- immediately, I was just like, oh, that's what Ash is going to do when Ash wins Australian Open. Yeah. And it made me happy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, I mean, Lindsay is sort of the normal in our in our parlance in this world. This one who seems least maladjust or, you know, who's handling the fame best and shirking a lot of the things i mean i think actually it's there's a lot of players in the current tour who have definite elements of Lindsay, of Lindsay. like i mean pliskova is the other one who comes to mind too as a bit of of Lindsay's True. unbotheredness at times yeah Encore, carolina Encore has the unbotheredness yeah yeah for sure that that's a good call and carolina's like friends with so many players as well right yeah. um so yeah nope that's a good call and you know, so there's there's different combinations, but yeah, Ash just like stood out. But I mean, Lindsay was just I did I ever tell this story on this podcast that her brother-in-law was my volleyball coach in high school? I don't think so. I mean, I assume. Well, here's Leech. the thing. I assume. No, uh, her. He's married to her sister Shannon. Oh, okay. I hope they're still married because otherwise, this is awkward. Ah, they were married then. It's fine. Well, no, they weren't married then. They were engaged, though. I think. Um, okay, well. but yeah, but like, so when Stanford, when, when Lindsay, um, would come and play like Stanford or Oakland or whatever the Northern California tournament was at the time, like she would crash with, with her sister and, and, and my coach and he would literally come into practice and just be like, oh, and I wasn't really into like that again, like I said, like I wasn't really paying attention to tennis that much at the time. And it's just like, oh, my oh, my girlfriend's sister is like crashing. She's such a mess. She just like <laughs> has like just leaves all her stuff everywhere. And like that, but that was literally the only complaint he had. Like, which, you know, like she was just like a normal he was just like she's just like a normal teenager. Like it's not that big of a deal. But but yeah, that's Lindsay. Like the normalist of the normals. That's the other thing we should get into we haven't really mentioned about in this episode so far. It's just how young everybody in this book is. Like, we talk about the tour being composed, comprised of largely older players now. Men's tour gets this talk more than the women's. But and women's in the last couple of years has shifted back to being a, a fairly youth-oriented tour. But, like, my gosh, everybody in this book was super young. Lindsay's, like, the elder stateswoman of kind of, of main characters, of the main main characters of yeah, the main true. four. And she's in her in her early 20s in this book and venus and serena are in their teens hingis is in her teens i mean yeah it's a uh, it's a young crew and just that how that informs that i mean and you see the energy around coco golf being a teenager making waves on the tour and uh well yeah i mean and, and, and you... this is like that times four it's like the top and or even more maybe like these are the best players for teenagers not just oh there's a player who's making a, a surge and is young and is going to break top 50, which is what golf has done so far. This was like a much more relevant youth group that I think got a lot of excitement into it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Coco is hard, too, because she's like 15, 16 years old. But like, if you know, but if you can imagine a tour where like the best players in the world are like Bianca, Yastrzemska, Fernandez, Layla Fernandez. Yeah, Layla, like Katie McNally, 
Yeah. You know, that's sort of like, that's what we're talking about in terms of like, you know, like we is outside of Bianca, who obviously is the top 10 player and Grand Slam champion. But like the you're talking about an entire crew. Like if that was the crew that was like doing all access hour all the time and, you know, getting all the media demands and, you know, the young kids, they talk. They're not scared as much yet. Maybe it's different now with like social media, but um yeah, maybe they do have more opinions, you know? I mean, maybe we, there is we, more shade. Look, we were both in the room when Yashremska was talking about Wozniacki in Australia. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Yashremska is talking about Wozniacki, and it was such a sort of throwback moment. After Wozniacki had already shaded Yashremska, this is when what wound up being Wozniacki's last win in Melbourne was against Yashremska. And, yeah, and uh, it was a... A different sort of moment. Yeah. And you see that. And I was talking to you. I'll just tell you now because I think it sort of fits. I was asking you earlier. I was saying there's one player who I could think of from the current era who would fit seamlessly into the Venus Envy cast. And for me, it is Andrescu. Like, Andrescu is the one who has sort of the personality and the chutzpah and the charisma and the undauntedness and the boldness and the brashness and the game and the swagger and everything that I think she would fit perfectly in this era. Yeah. I could see her being transplanted there. And and the sort of eccentric, you know, family and story and stuff like that. I think she would fit perfectly. I mean, I it was hard for me not to read Venus Envy and not think to if would a good book be written if it was written right now? If Venus Envy but, you know, for 2020, given the current cast of WTA kind of stars and players and whatever and I wouldn't say as of right now, like that it would be the same because I think the star power that's involved in this book at this point, obviously, now that we can look back and know, mm-hmm. is uh, you know stratospheric. But if you had like a book, or even if you had like a reality TV show that followed five different players, right, and they were Bianca, and Naomi, and like I don't know, probably Ash. Serena's still here. Serena is still here doing her thing. Like, you know, like, and there's still, I mean, Coco or like whoever. I mean, there's there's totally a cast in there that is pretty freaking compelling, honestly, because I do think that right now the personalities are far more varied than people give it credit for. Like, they aren't as big of personalities. Like, I think you're right with Bianca. Like, in terms, she has like this big personality that seems to fit this 2000 mold. Yeah. But, you know, like, I don't think Naomi has a big personality, but it's certainly a personality. And she's certainly fascinating, yeah. And certainly fascinating, right? And, you know, and you throw a Carolina, like, honestly, if you could just have a confessional and uh, you told Carolina Pliskova every day you got to go into the the confessional and, like, speak truth (laughs) about the other people in the house. She'd be like, is the red light on yet? I'm ready. (laughs) I mean, Carolina would be much watch television because she just doesn't care. She'd be like, yeah, so... Whatever, like, you know, this person didn't wash the dishes. I think it's pretty immature and stupid, but whatever. I'm not her mom. Like, you know? <laughs> Exactly. You may not like this take, but I think this does get to a bit of why that isn't happening right now, why there doesn't that same sort of buzz on the, the tour. I think it's because of the parody and the depth. I mean, I do think, like, and this is a parody which jumped out to me as a complete flipped quite, quote, and I remember you, you reading your Carnival at Forest Hills book as well, similar take, but... On page 20, John says, uh, insiders know that grand, in Grand Slams, the women's star doesn't really start until the second week. <laughs> Reader, I screamed. <laughs> I really did. I have it underlined as well in my book. Unlike the men's brackets, the, which are riddled with upsets, yeah. 
in the margins, I have written LOL <laughs> after having underlined that entire yeah. section. And it does it, it does show how quick it was. And it's true. Like back in those days, yeah, everyone we talked about as being a protagonist in this book would routinely roll through the first three or four rounds and not really lose more than three games in a set. Like they were just like they were that much better than the, the other ones. And there was not the depth. And so they were not threatened. And the bonus side of that is the plus side is it really did let them develop big stage frequent rivalries like venus and hingis play each other so many times in big matches uh hingis and davenport davenport and serena davenport and venus like they all play each other several times deep into grand slams in a way we haven't had in women's tennis really in the past decade honestly with two with a group of players doing that kind of thing and being a real oligarchy and so that makes it's a deeper cast in terms of the bench in terms of you get to know people like Wang Chung and and An Jabur and whoever else in the tour better maybe nowadays, but you don't get like those stars sort of really p- standing out in the same way and clearly yeah. floating to the top in this way that these other ones did. And and you know and like, as they said in the book, I mean the book it's not painted really as a positive totally because the first weeks were boring, and it was all about like what outfit they wore and like what kind of nonsense was going on with you know, Demir Dockich or whatever. And now you don't right. really have that as much. And there wasn't, there wasn't this, there isn't this sideshow in tennis in the first week as there used to be. Maybe the media has changed too. Maybe that's not what editors want anymore. Maybe that could still be found if people wanted to. And certainly God knows that like at Wimbledon with the British tabloids, you get that. But uh, yeah, it was a well, bit more, a bit more focused. Yeah. I mean, back it, then. it's like, comparing typical what is traditional episodic television to something like Orange is the New Black, where like every episode kind of focused, you're like, oh, okay, so we're going to talk about this character right now? Oh, I thought this was a side character. And like, that seems to be like, kind of the case right now. It's like, oh, so this, this next three weeks, this is the hot player. And so we got to, you know, as a storyteller. Orange is the Black is actually a really good analogy for WTA right now. Yeah. Like, because there, know, are, like, there are times in Orange is the Black where you watch an episode and you're like, really? She's getting her own episode? Yeah, for <laughs> okay. sure. <laughs> and, then there, and then there will be a three-week stint where it's just all about Piper again. Yeah, yeah. Who is the, who is the protagonist, right? You, is Serena Piper? Is that what we're saying? I don't want to do that. <laughs> I mean, I don't like that, but I think that's where we, that's where you kind of painted yourself in. I no, I did. I'm just saying as a concept, okay, <laughs> Orange know. is the New Black works in terms of you know kind of where the WTA is in terms of the depth of the cast, right? The cast okay. of characters. It's mm-hmm. yeah, no, it's it's fascinating to me how much like as you mentioned, like in Carnival um, at Forest Hills, which is the other book uh, that I was reading from the early 80s that was just focused on one uh, one tournament at the U.S. Open, um, they do the same thing of like, oh, there's so it's so boring on the women's tour because it's just about dominance and the men have way more parity and it's great and that's why the men get should get paid more and you can't even argue with that. And then you have Venus and me in 2000 that's like, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, the women, you know, they kind of, they can be counted on because they get to the deep end and they run the second weeks and the men are all over the place. And then now in the Federer era, it's like, oh, the men have dominance and the women, I mean, pick a name out of a hat and it's a joke. And it's just weird to me that like the arguments seem to always change in order to favor the guys funny how that works isn't it isn't that weird it's just the weirdest coincidence it's i keep just noticing so that too. weird yeah. to talk about venus envy <laughs> um <laughs> but um yeah but yeah 
But I thought that like um, another moving on as we kind of progress through the book, the other thing that I thought that was quite cool about um, what John did was like kind of his additional reporting and research into um, like tennis parents. Yeah, 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 yeah. Parents are a big part of this book. Parents are a big part of this book, which are is less of a thing that exists currently. Definitely. Right? Which I'm um, happy about. Sure. And uh, But back then, like you were saying, Ben, like we were talking about teenagers, right? So parents automatically, that's just going to be a thing. I really liked he went and talked to some um, kind of like sports psychologists or sports sociologists. And they were kind of saying like you see like the tennis parents so much in like women's tennis it's made a big deal of more than like in men's tennis because in men's tennis there comes a point where the kid gets big enough to beat the shit out of you. Yeah. The physical dominance is very much a play. The physical dominance is is a very real thing in terms of and so it's interesting right when you kind of like read that and you hear like an expert say it which I've always kind of thought but to see an expert say it and then to again think back to how women's tennis is discussed and oh the women are mentally weak because they have you know these domineering parents and it's like no, they're, they're they have dominating parents maybe because they're physically weak. Like mm. it's not necessary. You know, like it it turns into this weird gendered thing about the mental fragility of female tennis players, which obviously bothers me in a very real way. Yeah. So he goes into a lot of that, and then I mean, it comes up later. But I think it's I think the stuff that he wrote about Richard is really interesting. The Richard stuff is actually some of my yeah. Yeah, that's that's like pretty important source material, I think. Absolutely. In terms of like doing the legwork and actually not just reporting, oh, Richard said this absurd thing, which I'm sure what the newspapers and the magazines were doing contemporary contemporaneously, but actually, and this is where books are really, really helpful and long reads and things like that, of actually doing the legwork and like actually verifying whether or not certain things that a person is saying are backed up in fact. And I think John did a great job. Yeah. yeah. I have a highlight paragraph on from Richard to uh, to read about this. Here we go. Um, and, and just like, and I think the thing is with, with Richard is that I think people now, obviously now, and obviously he's been out of the spotlight for 10 years really now and not talking to the press really at all. But I think people, anyway, and this is useful. So here we go. So this is a scene at Indian Wells uh, the year before everything went to shit in any wells. What Williams says here is Richard, as written by John Wertheim, sucking on his trademark cigarillo and turning his head to puff cumulus clouds of nicotine soot. The man who has said he was looking to, into buying Rockefeller Center for $3.9 billion is updating an acquaintance uh, on his latest business ventures. He says he just l- launched a website, quote, for fucked up girls called homegirls.com that he expects will net him more than $100 million by year's end. He claims to have purchased the air rights over India and will make millions charging a fee to planes that traverse this space. It's based on the weight of their cargo, he explains. He also reports to have recently purchased a seat on the Shanghai Stock Exchange, quote-unquote. Then there's his fledgling career as a vocalist. He says that a Bahamian casino, he can't recall the name, has offered him $250,000 a night to sing, and another $250,000 a night if he can coax Venus into backing him up on drums. Like, that's kind of like the goofy side. Those are all things that Richard Williams said, like, on the record. And just, like, I think that sort of yeah. collection of things. And then there's the sort of darker side stuff that John also gets into in this chapter, which mostly focuses on Richard, about, you know, people don't really talk about that he has, before he had Venus and Serena with uh, Orsine, uh, who he's married to at that time, he had another family of five kids, I believe, before that, who say that he essentially 
neglected or abandoned them before after moving on to uh, Venus and Serena and their careers, and they were left out of all the you know riches and lack of support and everything that followed. Um, and there's you know allegations of domestic violence by Orsine against Richard that have come up in the book. And these are you know darker things that I think. And I'm very curious. And I was thinking this as reading this chapter. They're making a book, a movie now, excuse me, about uh, Richard, starring yeah. Will Smith, called King Richard. And I'm very curious to see how that movie does because you could make you could make very different movies about Richard Williams. Yeah, and I, I think that John, um, I mean, to his immense credit, I think did a really good job of not making this binary. Yeah, and this kind of goes into what you're kind of mentioning with King Richard, right? It's very because the results worked like Richard said all these things that people maybe thought were outside of the box (laughs) I'll put it that way um and people can mock and they can make fun and they can say you know Levy uh can characterize him how they choose to characterize him but at the end of the day he produced two of the greatest champions the sport has ever seen he did you know like and so you can't just sit there and say oh he's a crazy quack Cause he's not like, you know, but at the same time, you can't say this dude was playing four dimensional chess, right? Like seeing things that like, we just don't, we mere mortals don't see without going back. And even just like the basic, you know, kind of the myth of, of Richard of, you know, son of a sharecropper and, you know, and, and, or whatever. And, and, um, you know, kind of, those are not verifiable things. They're not verifiable. We're not saying they're not true, but like, there's Based no proof of, of them. There no, and John did the legwork to like talk to the people in the community. You know, in Shreveport, Richard, yeah. yeah, Richard said like, "Oh, I was a star basketball player. I was a star football player." And like the local reporter from like Shreveport was like, "Trust me, if this guy played at all, I would have known who he was." Um, so I think that in that way, it's like it's one of those things where because even to this day, and you know, not 2020 necessarily, but like 2019. Uh, 2018 the myth is still repeated yeah i don't know if that's because like venus envy is not a googleable search document i don't know but like there are just certain there are things that even for myself that i knew once i reread it again i was like oh yeah that's right that isn't necessarily true like why do we say that like you know um in that way and but i think that john did a really good job of kind of walking at both ends of kind of being like okay i did the legwork this stuff these little details might be true. And Orsine always says, take everything he says with a grain of salt. But at the same time, like the dude was smart and the dude, the dude was astute and yeah. his, and his, he, got, he, he understood the business side. He got a lot of things. He just didn't get everything. And nowadays everybody wants everything to be binary. And I think, I don't know. I feel like John did a really good job of navigating what is a really, I think as a writer and as a reporter, like, it would have been really tricky to nail. I think that he nailed it. I think that is, I agree. I think it's the most like impressive reporting part of the book and writing part of the book is the Richard yeah. part, just because, and Richard was still very much in the forefront. And I think people also now, and one thing I think also about this book that was instructive, and it was interesting, actually, we just came from watching both of us, the 2003 Australian Open final, that was just on TV between Venus and Serena. I and, genuinely thought Venus was going to win that match. And then you, I was like, oh, wait, this is the, you didn't know the result of that match. I didn't know the result. <laughs> Courtney, come on. I, just, I think Chris Otto finally spoiled it for me. But I was like, oh, but as it kept going, I really, I don't know. I just, 
I really thought Venus was going to win. Oh, I'm sorry for your loss then, but no. Um, (laughs) Anyway, no, um, you do sort of get to understand one thing that I think gets lost to the limits these days. It's like Richard in particular was, and, and his daughters to their own extent too, were very grating. Like there were reasons for people to be alienated by the Williamses that did not have to do just with their race. Yes, the race was absolutely a primary factor for a lot of people, spoken or unspoken, that was off-putting and jarring people to see this unapologetic black family come along. But Richard also was obnoxious and arrogant, boastful in ways that turned a lot of people off. And sometimes each of his daughters had their moments being that way too. And so I think, yeah, I just think this is like for anyone doing Williams looking, I think this is a very important chapter. And obviously writing is on the wall in terms of, or that's not the right phrase, but the, you know, the scoreboard is on the wall in terms of what he produced and their champion and their greatness. Uh, but also this sort of more interesting, complicated parts of their legacy, which occasionally, you know, come through in different parts of their story and different tellings. And like that first Venus and Serena documentary that came out in like 2013, there are moments mm, like this right, too. Yeah. Uh, a bit with Richard also where like Serena, you know, is not sure like how many siblings she has. In one sort of like awkward scene there, you know, there are parts of it that are that are messier. I think it's the safest word, just like parts that are more complicated. And yeah, so I am I, this this rereading this made me very curious about this movie. But the and thing is, that's my real thought. Where is the Queen Oracine film? Because that's the film I want to see. Who would play Oracine in a movie? That's a good question, right? I think I have it in my head, but now I, uh, no, lost it. I would go for Octavia Spencer. I was going to say Octavia, but then I was like, eh, do I want Octavia? I mean, I feel like a Viola. But I feel like Viola has like a, she has a, a, this like. I think Octavia can look both older and younger is the thing. I think Viola just looks older. I think anything you'd want in the movie, you'd want like a younger Um, version. That's my thought. I don't know. Maybe there's somebody else too, but Octavia is my first thought. I just feel like Viola has this like, there's this, not that Octavia doesn't have it, but Viola has this like quiet dignity that I associate with Oracine, but at the same time, you kind of want somebody who can do kind of goofy. Because she gets Oracine's goofy. Because also kind of goofy. She gets goofy. Which I love. Yeah. <laughs> Seeing her dance in the stand, she gets goofy. I love sure. her. I love her. And she is great in this book, too. Oracine is yes. in this chapter, and she's also a constant voice of reason in this book. And Not just in the book. No, and forever and always. <laughs> yeah, no, Oracine, Oracine rules. I, I, I would like to see the Oracine film. <laughs> Give me that film. That's one, the film I want. One other small moment which I highlighted in this chapter about Richard is there's a friend of his, um, oh, who's the person who says that he wasn't the shun, a son of a sharecropper. It's referred yes. to as Arthur, <laughs> parentheses, Turd Bryant. His name is Turd. Spectacular. Right. Spectacular. Um, quick shout out to the, prayer, the chapter we skipped, on, which is on Oklahoma City, which I really liked as a chapter, actually, about uh, yeah. Sarah Fornachari, who actually is still as much of a hard worker hustler as she ever was. She called me during the last week to pitch me like possible quarantine stories about like her clients. She was like, we're working. We're that. still getting this. She is still still hustling. So uh, she I is still, that, yeah. And I think that the value of that chapter and why I, re- I just really think that like every women's tennis fan should read this book, like pick it up, find it, get a used copy, whatever. But I think that the chapter on Oklahoma City, which was a tournament, a WTA tournament, was just so good from front to back as to like giving you a real good understanding as to the pressures and the difficulty of running events and the the different interests that are in play yeah. and what happens when big name players pull out 
for an event and how meaningful it is when a, another player steps in, like all of these sorts of things. Like, I just think that from an operational perspective, I feel like if more, not just women's tennis fans, but just tennis fans understood the tournament side, because I feel like everybody always wants our instinct. And I say that our, I mine as well is to back the player and to defend the players. But I think that understanding more and more and more, you know, what is at stake for tournaments and what they have to do, I think really gives you a much better understanding as to why things happen the way that they happen in the sport. Um, and it gives you a more balanced, I think, perspective um, in terms of understanding what is the impact, you know, what like Oklahoma City, what is the impact when Venus, their top seed, pulls out? And what are the things that have to happen and what, how do you have to scramble to save an event, you know? Um, so, you know, I think that people would probably be a lot fairer with respect to how they talk about tournaments if they would just, like, read that singular chapter. <laughs> yeah, and it's weird. Also, just, like, I don't like the way that just get preachy here for a second out of nowhere. I don't like the way that, like, tennis fans are so dismissive of small tournaments all the time. Especially, like, tennis Twitter seems to be kind of, like, mocking, you know, yeah. I don't know, like any small tournament who kind of like ever act like they're a big deal they try to like put them in their place or something like these are like these are real businesses that are important parts of the various communities i'm willing to bet that at this time that this was the most important professional sports event probably in oklahoma this tournament yeah uh, they didn't is, have the thunder at yeah, the they time the so back then and they still had big college football and stuff but it was probably a professional side of sports certainly women's sports well it was a uh, big event a too yeah. i mean you talk to anybody from that era everybody talks about oklahoma city yeah like as an event. And it was only know? quote unquote a tier three, I think. I don't think it ever got up to tier two. Yeah. But uh but it was still a big deal. That was when players also played heavier schedules and Americans were more likely to play almost all the American tournaments largely. So yeah, it was a it was a big event and uh and just and but it takes a lot of hustle. And it's a great chapter for how the sausage is made. And also this chapter is where you get the most focus on one person I want to talk about briefly in this. This sort of a thought experiment. We don't get too much into her. Samantha Stevenson in this book is another parent. And there's are a couple mothers in this mix of parents being talked about in the book. Uh, but Samantha Stevenson, what I find most intriguing about her is that you know that she was at the 1999 Wimbledon uh, where her daughter made it to the semifinals as a qualifier. You know that she was credentialed media from the New York Times at that tournament? I did not know that. Yeah, Samantha Stevenson was like reporting on this tournament for the New York Times. She was like the me of 1999. As like a freelancer working for the New York Times at, at Wimbledon, and her daughter makes the semifinals, and she. Starts... I love that you share professional DNA with Samantha Stevenson. I know, right? <laughs> so much else about us is so similar. Um, yeah, but no, but she's. I'm just imagining like what that would be like if a reporter had like a kid who made like a deep run in a slam. That'd be wild. Wild. That would be wild. I mean, if that. If you've already been credentialed and then which is questionable whether you should have been credentialed in the first place. But then secondly, you don't produce some of your best writing out of out well, of that combination of results. I don't know what to do. I, the New York Times, <laughs> I believe, <laughs> fairly quickly once because before Alexandra was a relevant pro player, it wasn't seen as like a big conflict of interest. Like, oh, my daughter happens to play and she's ranked way outside top hundred, whatever. Okay. But once she started being relevant, I think Samantha was sort of excused, at least from writing about women's tennis for a while, because it was seen as problematic, especially as she also became more of a, a mouthpiece on tour, saying all sorts of nonsense. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah. So that's that's Oklahoma. And then Monica Sellis wins that, takes mm -hmm. a Southwest flight because she's super, she loves a good deal. 
Monica Sellis. Love a gal who's frugal. I yeah. love a gal who's like looking out for her cash. I respect it. And I, I, I want to say on the mother front too, to skip a little bit ahead to Melanie Molitor, I feel like does not get mm. enough credit in the sort of conversations about female coaches because she was it for Martinez. She was her sole coach. I mean, there was not like she was like, you know, lending a helping hand and there was some man at the helm. It was a Melanie Molitor production, the Martina Hingis career. And, and Molitor created one of the most like tennis player purists like fan favorites like the you know the most chess like most intricate intellectual game we've ever seen and that is like all female made by women for women and i don't know i think that just in the sort of conversation about more female coaches i even though she yes she is a mother uh and family members sort of get discounted in terms of their coaching prowess which also goes to richard williams and also goes to other people too melanie malter i was just looking back at this uh and having not thought about her for a while i was like wow yeah she deserves a bit more spotlight and a bit more attention in the conversation about moms on tour yeah i mean a foundational especially now obviously with the influence on belinda benchich like a foundational mind on on the wta I mean, effectively, depending on what Belinda does with her career, but she could very easily have her hand into like Grand Slam winning, you know, talents of of different de- generations. That's pretty. It's pretty massive. And and you're right. I mean, more should be made of kind of Melanie's influence and impact there. Yeah. So whenever the Hingis book comes, hopefully Melanie will get her get her due. Yeah, we mentioned we talked about it a bit on the podcast with John, which will come out later. But the Fedorov Beret Kornikova love triangle, as witnessed by Lindsay Davenport, Spe- tremendous, spectacular, spectacular. Like, it's so great. The Kornikova part. <laughs> Kornikova is not. I don't think did an interview for this book. She's not widely quoted as like directly talking to John really in this book. But the parts of her that are here are all just so absurd and preposterous that like it just it does not compute. Because like people who don't know hockey like sergey fedorov and and pavel burry were like two of the top easily top 10 especially like mid 90s late 90s like stars in the nhl they were big deals Even and more pavel so. burry was sexy yes. like i loved pavel loved yes. pavel have you seen like, the, the shirtless photo of him on the cover of that vancouver newspaper um yeah I'm just obviously saying. they put it on the they put it literally it's just a front page photo because he was that good looking shirtless. It was like, we have to put the front page. We don't have a choice. It's preposterous journalism. This like, is news. It's news. <laughs> well, in Canada it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, like I couldn't understand the Fedorov thing. Like I remember, again, I was not paying attention to the tennis during this time, but I knew about Anna Kornikova and Fedorov and Bure. And I was like, Sergei Fedorov, what is wrong with you? He was a big but old star. He was, he was a big star. star, but it was, yeah. It, it was, was it and was she thing. was 16 they get that not uh, enough john could have done a little bit more with the statch element of this whole story <laughs> there was statch <laughs> there was at some point in what i think it was in this maybe john wrote the story as Sports illustrated or maybe somebody else did it was a cornico i think it was a cornico of a story and there's like a mention of because new york police departments love attention they made this like very public letter to sergey fedorov like the queen's da being like hey buddy we know what you're doing here watch it you know during the u.s open one year just like it's it's preposterous and all these yeah we would just it would not happen these days although i guess i I can't say that blanket statement but you know it'd be pretty wild if uh a top if like ovechkin was dating you know um, maria karolenko or well he did yes (laughs) i know but even like uh Coco Golf. Did you know that there was um oh. uh, I'm just saying that's what it was like. It was crazy. <laughs> you <laughs> took you... that to a weird place, bro. <laughs> Did you know that like another tennis player 
at least claimed to have dated Ovechkin. Um, Olga Puchkova, fun fact. I think oh, at some point was I, saying that she had dated Ovechkin. That was the thing when she was on the Washington Castles, and obviously he's a Washington hockey boy. There's a lot of tennis to hockey crossover because of Eastern Europe. And so the like Czech, the Russians, the Czechs, Czech, Czech, yeah, the Czechs for sure. I yeah. mean, that's obviously the the primary dating pool. I think isn't uh, isn't Lindsay? Sorry, isn't uh, Lucy Safarova having a baby yeah. with a hockey player? Yep, yep. Good he for played her. for. I can't remember for who. Thomas Plakanich, is that who it is? Yeah, he played in yeah, the Montreal, NHL and then yeah. now I think plays in Brno, no? That sounds possible, yeah, sure. I think he, like, retired from the NHL and, like, basically, um, yeah, moved back and plays for, like, the the, the team in Brno in, in, in Czech, which is um, obviously Lucy's hometown, so. Mazel tov to them. Yeah. Uh, let's see, other thoughts on things in this book. There's just, like, so many, like, little, like, throwaway things. It's just little things. My, my, my buddy, my, I'll, I'll start with one, you go next. My, my buddy Kate was pointing out that she was trying to track down after reading this, the three mystery novels that Martina Navratilova wrote. Yes. <laughs> like a throwaway line. And they are out there. Uh, let me see if I can find them. Hold on. They're t- and they were, the first one was, I think, more widely published than the next two. I think the printing numbers shrunk and shrunk on these books, uh, it seemed. But one moment. The first one is called The Total Zone, a mystery. Without like being in the zone. And the oh next my. one is called Breaking Point. And the third one is called Killer Instinct. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Killer Instinct cover is goofy as heck because it is <laughs> it is a I will send it to you now. It is a red. I'll just show. It. I'll send it to you, and you can see how goofy it is. Oh dear. Pause for WhatsApp. Okay. <laughs> To paint the picture, it is a red backdrop with a body, like, corpse dead on the tennis court holding a racket. And then, like, superimposed on front is Martina's smiling face. It is wild. But it's like... <laughs> it's like, um, like a commentary shot, like a, like your stock headshot. It's a headshot, yeah. It's, a, it's like a casting call headshot of Martina Navratilova. Oh, that's beautiful stuff. It, oh, I was highly that's too good. That's too good. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so there's so many, there's so much like hidden candy, and there's so many Easter eggs in this book. Yeah, really, for sure. What were you um, gonna say? Is, is some of them? Well, no, I just again, like it was kind of you know, I guess my mindset going into it obviously was was enjoying kind of the gossip and then the sniping back and forth, but also just kind of with the general air of like what's changed, what's stayed the same. I mean, this is 20 years ago, mm-hmm. like this book. Um, that's crazy, like to think, you know, that's, that's a long time. And, um, but over two decades, some things just have not changed. And I found myself flagging and underlining a lot of those things. Like John talks about how, like how the men, the ATP players get like different questions than the WTA players. Oh yeah. So like about how like the ATP, you know, they get kind of questions about their matches and kind of, they get generally pretty straight forward sports questions yeah and then uh whereas and this is john writing uh no topic seems to be off limits to women in the interview room quote what's the status of your love life what did you think of your opponent's outfit did you go shopping yesterday are all questions the like the likes of pete sampras and pat rafter would never have to address yet they're de rigueur when martina hingis or serena williams sits in front of the microphone 
The tour is complicit in this. Restricting questions to forehand grips and break points hardly furthers women's tennis's goal of transcending the sports pages. At its best, the anything-goes atmosphere personalizes the competitors, supplements their on-court persona. It is what helps them and makes them stars rather than jocks, and it keeps them from being as insipid as most of their ATP counterparts. All true. A lot of truth there. A lot of truth there, and yet it's still like going back to what I was saying before. Like, yeah, I just because it still grates on me to this day, right? Like, like the questions, and I think that generally it's a little bit better nowadays because with the star power of Roger and Rafa, um, in particular, and then maybe Andy and, and Novak, but like, um, asking them anything and getting any quote is going to lead to clicks on your article. So I think they do get a little bit more questions that are um, outside of the outside of the box, but with the women, it's just always the same. It's like the questions are very rarely about the match, and it's almost always about other stuff. And what I've always said is that I don't mind that the the the, the questions about the other stuff. Like I ask those questions. Like that's the stuff that you know I I know fans are interested in. Whatever. It's just weird to me that the girls get them way more yeah. than the men. And that's that's what always kind of bothers me. Not the questions themselves, just that they're direct that that the guys don't get them. That just seems like bad business. I would say to clarify, I mean, you're not asking players like who they're dating and what their romantic lives are like. Oh no, no, no. no. But like you know, like oh, what do you like nowadays? What what the equivalents are? Like oh, what are you watching on Netflix? Hey Naomi, did you ever get that Haitian food in L.A.? Yeah. Like, and granted, I ask some of those questions because I have the relationship to ask them. And I know it's okay because I ask all the other questions too. But you know what I'm talking about. There are certain reporters in that room. I just wanted to make clear to people that like the romantic life stuff is almost never happening anymore. Not never, as Isla (laughs) Tomjanovich's presser in Australia, I think, showed. And Wimbledon. And okay. Uh, Maria Serena. Of course, yeah. But but also, like, the other thing is, and I will say this the women are also a lot of times seem less interested in talking about the matches themselves. Like, a lot yeah, of times you're fair. not you're not getting like especially like a Serena or Maria maybe are they often like talking like giving like real like tactical breakdowns of their matches like no but are the so, guys more, I genuinely more, ask that because I, I, think, I don't remember it's been like five or six years since yeah, I'm in an no, ATP press I think, conference but I, think I didn't more, remember the guys wanting to talk about that stuff either more than the women I think I think the guys are That's more fair. comfortable talking about the match and tactic stuff and also like they're less cagey about it. The women, like, if you ask them, like, what was your strategy? Yeah, like, they're, like, acting like they're practicing state secrets. Or, like, no, why would I ever true. give it away? But, like, especially, like, like Barty is, like, notorious on that. <laughs> as much as she's, like, you know, like, very, just, you know, just the fact. She's also, like, very much close to her vest in a lot of ways. To uh, be fair, she's breaking down a lot of players. Oh, yeah. So she's kind of like, literally, why would I tell you? Because it's literally working. <laughs> they, they sort of hear it as, like, give away your secrets, which is not really what we mean. But, like, and sometimes it's just, right. like... And sometimes it is just like sort of a paint by number story question, like, "Hey, we want we're going to write the story, and we know that like you breaking down her backhand is why you won." But if you could say anything to like give a little illustration to this paragraph, my story to validate my you know read on this match, and sometimes players don't engage with that as much. So yeah. I, I do I do think, and the women That's might, fair. yeah, and and so the men, but you're right, the men don't get these questions. The men don't get the Netflix questions. Really, they don't get uh, you know the. Did you go shopping? Yeah. Did you what go, are you going to do with your winnings? Are you going to buy yourself something nice? Yeah, you know, exactly. like that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Like that does not land at the foot of Roger Federer. Even though, honestly, it's fine if it get, if it does. Ask him. I just, I don't find a problem with the question. 
I, I just think, have a problem that like it yeah. seems to always go to one side and not the other side. I would love to know what Roger does with his winnings. I want some stock tips. I remember the only one time that Roger and Roger is to be clear, like one of the highest paid athletes in the world. So he has a lot of money. And so like what he does with this money is a very fair question. Same with Rafa, same with Novak, same with Serena, honestly. I mean, like what they do with their millions upon millions and millions of dollars, like sure, ask it. That's reasonable enough. They can say no, but it's a it's a fair question. It's there on the <laughs> Forbes list. Nisha that reminds Cor- me what of- does Nisha Corey do with his money? I have no idea. Yeah, it's true. I, that reminds me, though, of a of a small moment. I think I've maybe have said this on the on the. I've never talked about the Maria stuff, but like, um, it, in terms of reaction to her retirement, I just realized on the pod. But um, oh yeah, please talk about Maria. No, no, no. This has nothing to do with that. But like one of the stories that I always remembered that I always held very fondly um, to my heart that was a Sharapova related one was at the Australian Open back when we were in the old press room with the theater style um, press conference room. The interview uh, room. I think I know um, yeah, and, and Sveta was doing her press conference. And um, at some question, somebody was asking Sveta all these questions about finances, about tennis players and money and what do you do with it and how do you save it and blah, blah, blah. And Maria was supposed to come into the press conference next. And so, Maria, you can see her head on the little you know window in the door kind of peeking in and she sees that it's Feta. And so finally, Maria's like waiting long enough. And this is a very Maria thing to do. And she opens up the door. It's like, Sveta, you're done. Like, go. You know, they're ribbing each other. And so Sveta's just like, she grabs her bottle and her credential off the table. You know, she does like kind of like in an exhausted way. And she's like, they're asking me what I do with my millions. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, I can't remember what Maria said. She was like, well, what do you do with your millions? And like Sveta was said something like, I keep under my bed or something <laughs> like that. But it was just the most weirdly Russian like exchange. And neither of them missed a beat. And like Maria had a smile on her face the whole time. Sveta was just giving her stick and she was giving her stick. It was great. But it was like one of those like really small little moments. Yeah, it just felt like an honest interaction. While we're here... Uh, Maria Sharapova is mentioned briefly in this book, actually, which I give on the podcast we did with John, gave him credit for sort of seeing her coming down the road because she was the next sort of emerging star after this group. Because Kleisters and Hennen are mentioned both briefly in this book. And they're both already Love on the Hennen to- stuff. Hennen stuff is great. Was great. Um, but Sharapova is mentioned. Let me see if I can find the mention of her. One of these is about Korn- in the Kornikova chapter. One of these Kornikonas. I roll is 13 year old Maria Sharapova, who has already signed with IMG and trains at the IMG owned. Uh, Voluntary Academy, and then it goes on to Monique Vili, who's a little more ridiculous. But we talk about we talk about Anna a lot with John. The other two people. So basically, I was talk about Hingis briefly. Yes, Hingis, she's a this, big part of this book. Big part of this book. She was number one during the, a lot of this year in two thousand, even though she was uh, had not won a slam in a while. And actually, what's interesting about this book also, I think, kind of is after Lindsay wins her first slam, or wins her third slam in the first chapter of this book, or the first real chapter in Australia. Hingis Sellas Kornikova. And Davenport have, will all like go on to win no more slams in their career. Like they're all kind of done, yeah. which you wouldn't get the sense of through this book. They're all still yeah. like, kind of on top of the world or at least relevant. And the Williams domination really did. And Capriotti comes up and wins three in the next couple of years. Um, but the Williams domination followed by the Belgians, things really do change quickly. So this really was sort of a, a snapshot of time. But Hingis, yeah, Hingis is this fascinatingly, you know, 
unfiltered character, which I remember even still seeing hints of in her comeback years when I was covering her, and even like Definitely. her doubles only years. And I, just, I remember even like I told the story before, like one of the things that maybe get more full time intense reporting, as silly as it was, was when I was blogging for SB Nation or the Daily Forehand and interviewed Hingis after a world team tennis match and asked her if she ever might come back for the Olympics to play with Roger mixed in the first ever mixed doubles or return of mixed doubles Olympics in 2012. And she like gave this like way too honest answer about how he'd already asked her about it and like started like spilling everything. And I was like, I don't know what to do with this on my blog, but okay. Um, and cause I thought she'd be like, haha, no, we'll see. No, but she's like, she's super unfiltered and it makes for like a really fascinating uh kind of like it's a loose, wild loose ride can- it's a loose, because she's a loose cannon yeah she's a loose cannon because even the most recent press conference she gave which was in shenzhen this last fall um she was there as an ambassador and she did a press conference and she was asked about clysters coming back and she started being like yeah no good for her like blah, blah. and as you can read this on the asap website but as the answer kept going and i don't know if it comes across in black and white but she just completely goes into this whole thing of like, yeah, good freaking luck. Like, it's really hard. Like, and it became this very pessimistic, like, which, which yeah. I should say it's been a common answer on Kleisters from people. Yeah, more so as time has gone on, it feels like maybe like a dis- like that's the conversation of like everybody being like, come on, like really. Um, but like Martina was pretty strong on it of being like her. I remember her answer being the most kind of negative like faithless hmm. <laughs> answer and i was like okay and i just in that moment was like ah that's right this is what it's like to have martina back on tour <laughs> yeah so martina is there and then i guess the the last i, if you have, I don't know if you have other thoughts on martina but we can get to the williamses who are obviously or venus particularly who serve a title character of this book and one of the things i just think people take for granted or maybe don't take for granted but it was interesting seeing it quantified in this book it's just how much diversity the williamses surge brought to tennis fandom which you still see Mm. On tennis Twitter, yeah. still still a, a racially diverse place, uh, in American tennis Twitter for sure, and across the world too. But I mean, here's a stat that, um, according to an ESP, this is from the book, according to both an ESPN Chilton poll and a Nielsen Media Research study, 11% of African Americans in the U.S. consider themselves avid professional tennis fans, compared to uh, just four percent, four point seven percent of whites. So like, it was suddenly. Wow. That's that that really jumped that's out. That's massive. Of me. Yeah, yeah, it's huge. Like it's like almost more than twice as popular among black people and white people in tennis. And that's the Williams phenomenon. Yes, there were black people in tennis before the Williamses. That should not be discounted. But the Williamses really, once they took over the the women's sport, like black people really, you know, had a had a seat at the table in this sport for the first time. And even Arthur Ashe was a was a great player, but he was not. Uh, a dominant number one. He wasn't the sort of force of personality. I never, he never got the sense, at least reading about him. I was not alive during his time, but of his time on tour, but that, you know, he was not filling the stands of people uh, who were buying tickets just to see him the way that the Williams sisters did. The Williams sisters, I think really changed the demographic. And, uh, and Venus says, we know black people are our top supporters and it feels really good when black kids, boys and girls say, I want to be like you one day. And I just think I just thought it was cool. And I remember this I was as a Williams fan, as I mentioned before, I remember being very conscious of when I was at the actually at, in this book, I was at the two thousand US Open final, it was the first Grand Slam final I went to with my dad, uh, Venus versus Lindsay. And we were sitting up in the upper deck, and the upper deck was like where it was mostly Lindsay Davenport support at that US Open final. But the few, you know, Williams fans who were there were like black people in the upper deck. And me. 
So <laughs> it was uh, it was an interesting scene and just seeing yeah that those numbers anyway just really jumped out of me. Yeah, and I think that that transformational transformational nature it's so cool. Like unlike golf with Tiger Woods, who's had no who was talked about maybe having a similar possible impact on the sport. Um, at least on the professional level, there's been no real surge of African American pro players. Where on the women's side, in 2017, you had you know an all African American final in the Women's U.S. Open that was neither of the players was a Williams, and you had Coco Golf obviously coming up to it, more players than that also coming through. So and look at the junior girls. There's so many African American girls coming up in juniors. Yeah, and and that's and, and, that's, it's, and that's all are so largely Williamses, and that and they've changed. I think literally the face of the sport forever through that 100 for a long and, time yeah and and that's i think you know when yeah i mean it's it's hard to even think about how many chapters of the williams legacy book need to be written because there are just so many chapters so many things that they helped influence but i think that that's always one that that resonates with me like very, very like clearly is just, yeah, you know, you talk about Madison seeing, you know, picking, wanting to play tennis because she saw Venus in a dress at Wimbledon. I was like, I like that dress uh, and wanting to play and, and, you know, Naomi and, and basically, you know, her father, uh, Max, like doing the exact same thing of like seeing, you know, Venus and Serena be like, yo, I got two kids. Let's go. Like, you know, um, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And obviously Coco Goff and, um, and everything. And, that is, I don't know. I mean, I would be very, very interested to know post all of this discussion and maybe if there's enough feedback, I would love to like do a podcast on it, a follow-up podcast in a few weeks of like people, like, like if, if African-Americans or black people like read Venus Envy, like what is your takeaway from that book? Hmm. Like, cause I, I'm, I'm genuinely curious about that a little bit as well. Like I recognize if I have certain blinders on or if I see things a certain way and I'm not seeing it with the most open of eyes, which is not intentional. It could be just be like just passive or whatever, but I would really like to know, like, you know, like, because the Venus and Serena and the Richard, not Orsine, Orsine's the same now as she was then, but the way that those three principal Williams is are written about and discussed with their own words in in Venus Envy is very different, obviously, uh, to the ones that we are actively dealing with currently on tour with Serene and Venus, and and even maybe a little bit of like revisionist history with respect to Richard, who hasn't really been around for a few years. So you know, I think that you and I have discussed this in the past on different podcast uh, on podcasts about how. There is a little bit of revisionist history that comes with with the Serena legacy and the Venus legacy. And I feel like this this 2000 snapshot of what they were saying, what they were doing, how they were acting, how they were behaving, you know, all that sort of stuff like then. I don't know. I feel like a lot of this stuff has been completely sidelined to the current version. And maybe that's completely fine, which I totally get because we all change. I would hate for my you know, 21 year old self to be the thing that holds back the the self that I have now, because we all change and mature and like, whatever. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that that wasn't like, that isn't part of my story. Yeah. So it's the same thing I feel like in this. So I'd be very, very curious, like Serena fans, Venus fans, like, if you give it a chance, I mean, Serena is not really a principal player in this book. But at least just, yeah, give it a read and let us know. Send us an email, tweet, like whatever. Because I'm I'm genuinely curious as to kind of like what we should do with kind of the evolution of the Williams saga yeah. over time. 
One, um, give one quick sidebar book plug. I've not actually read this book yet, but I just got a review copy, which I'm excited for. Uh, there's a book called uh, by Cecil Harris, a second book about African American tennis history. He's written uh, just came out called Different Strokes: Serena, Venus, and the Unfinished Black Tennis Revolution. Just came out in 2020. Uh, I believe he just did a guest spot. I've not heard it, uh, but he did a guest spot on Carl B. Alex podcast, Thirty Love. Very recently cool. About it, so um, I'm looking forward to reading this book. It may be. A sidebar, in addition to in the time of hiatus and indefinite tennis suspension till God knows when, doing uh, other, I'll do other sort of bonus episodes outside of our main podcast selections. Maybe this will be one of them. And maybe, I don't know, I'm just making stuff as I go along and talk to Cecil or something or have more exploration of this book. Because I do think the, the black tennis story is super interesting. And I'm looking, I'm glad there is like a very contemporary book that's like just flipping through it as a chapter on, you know, the 2018 US Open final and things like that. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading this book. And I don't usually say that about things about the 2018 US final. I usually look forward to burying that deep down. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the sort of, we talk about the revisionism and the Beyonceification of Serena and just the simplification and the and the lack of dimension. And I do think the way this book covers the whole Williams family is just gives them a little bit more depth and a little more complexity, which is not which is not negative wholly, but is is just a little bit more critical in, a, in the thoughtful sense of being critically thinking of something. So I think that's all positive and yeah and i think and i think they they come off well i mean venus obviously at the end of this book is the best player in the world she's the alpha and even if she is number three in the world remember that time very clearly to where venus was like the player to beat was also was also nowhere near getting the number one ranking yeah interesting <laughs> moment um in the sport and yeah she wouldn't get to number one until 2002 and she only got it for 11 weeks which is one of the craziest stats it's tennis. such that's a nutty the, stat seven time champion venus williams who was for long stretches considered the best player in the world. It wasn't just that she like won her seven like very sporadically. Like she won four out of six slams at one stretch. And she never and she got to number one for eleven weeks out of that. And Serena took it and rest, rest wrestled it back and never gave it up again. So uh yeah. Fascinating family of the Williams and just a great story in sports and mythologies do get mythologized uh, in different ways. But I think this book uh it is pretty clear that I think John mentions this in the podcast a little bit that like even by the Miami final between Serena and Venus, like the Williamses were the story that put women's tennis over the top in this moment. As much as there was everybody else we spent time talking about in this uh, podcast, including Sharapova, uh, there you know right. it really it really was the Williamses who I think brought it next level and has continued to make women's tennis such a preeminent talking point in certainly an American sports discussion in American society. Uh, oh, for sure, yeah. tennis what, is only relevant in America because of Serena. Largely, yeah, and I think that's. I think that, I think that she. I think there's been enough of a transition time. I think really, that Osaka and golf, golf. particularly have been able to put down roots, kind of in the U.S. Like I do think they're going. They have been a nice torch passing crossover overlap section here, um, which maybe which wasn't inevitable. That might not have happened, but I think those two people in particular, both of whom osaka represents japan but is very comfortable in america and i think americans and she is actually in this book on african-american tennis uh, i thought you meant uh, venus envy i'm like what no, naomi osaka <laughs> is not in venus envy she would have been if john had called his shot and said like and naomi osaka <laughs> who just learned to walk will someday be relevant yeah that would have been impressive but uh but no uh any any final thoughts on as we said we do have another podcast with john talking about his experience writing the book and he's a treat and a delight and you will enjoy him. Um, any other thoughts on, on Venus Envy before we, before we wrap up? 
No, I mean, I, I think that we pretty much covered it. I, I think that I think it's a must read for everyone. I think that so much of especially younger tennis fans who maybe became tennis fans through social media, through kind of like the modern era of how we consume tennis. You know, your players that you watched growing up are all discussed pretty much in depth in this book. And and I just, you know, the only additional thing that I would say is just the same reason why, you know, I'm sitting here looking at a stack that's about three feet tall of, of tennis books that I've collected over time that that I'm going to spend this time reading, which is that, you know, there's just so much we don't know. And there's just so much context that we don't know. Um, and so many of the players that we still see or read about or hear from because they're still playing or they're in commentary positions or they are just relevant, you know, in the conversation of the sport. Like we think we know like who they are, but I have to say like going back and reading all these books from like specifically like the, the 60s, 70s and 80s about, you know, Pam Shriver or Martina or Chrissy or, you know, reading Ted Tindling's book, um, reading about Connors and reading about even I have this entire book on Bobby Riggs, which I, I'm looking forward to reading. Um, you know, it's it's super it's super necessary. And I, I just the more and more that I read about and delve into all these books, the more that I just kind of realize I have no business like opining sometimes about some of the things that I've said because I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't, I just simply don't know enough and I don't know the context enough. So really, really encourage people, you know, to to jump into it. And Venus Envy, I think, is right now probably like the most accessible, like nonpartisan, because I know people have read like, you know, uh, Maria's book or, or Rafa's book or Agassiz's Open or like whatever. But Venus Envy is just a really good piece of reporting and a really good and entertaining read to kind of get the whistle wet with respect to diving into to tennis's very storied past, which is impressive considering that our sport really, it's still less than 50 years old, which is like a baby compared to most of the major sports in the world. Yeah, there we go. So is our next selection officially going to be hard courts or, or what do you want to do for what people should read next? You choose. Up to you. Let's do Harcourts, I think. I think Harcourts is, is thematically fits as doing another one. It's a similarly, it's a little bit more dense, as we said, but it's similarly structured. It's a year on tour, the men's and women's tours, uh, by John Feinstein, another reporter who's like, uh, like John Wertheim, was a young reporter at the beginning of his career writing a story, you know, writing a book on the tour. Yeah, a lot of similar things to it, a lot of similar structure, but a very, but, but 10 years earlier, and obviously a very different 10 years. And a very different cast of characters. There's really nobody, with the exception of Capriati, who's not a big character in Venus Envy, really. Um, because she was still, I think, outside top 10 during this year. Uh, yeah. With the exception of Capriati and Navratilova, who comes up a little bit. And Shriver, Pam Shriver, I think, is probably in. I mean, uh, there's a great chapter. You've not read Hardcore, have you, Courtney? I have not finished it. Okay. I've read chapters, but I've not. There's, yeah, like a, there's, like a, there's like a great I just dropped on... it on. This is the sound of it dropping on my desk. <laughs> fucking dense bro but <laughs> it's I, i'm into it it's just it's it's, it's gonna gone. take a while it's, it's, it's a faster read than it feels like and we have nothing but time and that um, is a nine point font my friend there is. <laughs> if you want to back out here chance nope, now. we're good we're good Press, a, we're pressing a, there, through there's like a great chapter on carillo in there which i love oh well 
I'm done. I'm in. Now, now you're in. I mean, that's all I had to yeah. say. But there's a great chapter on Ted Tindling. There's a lot of like, it takes a lot of time and checks a lot of really cool boxes. And so, um, yeah, I think it's a good one. I hope you guys enjoy it. It's also available on ebook and as a used book and at a lot of libraries. Might still have hard courts. So check it out. Hard courts by John Feinstein. Your next collection. Then after that, I think we're going to do uh, Rivals. If you want to plan two ahead. Yes. And if you want to skip that. If you want to skip the thick book, you can, uh, and go to Rivals, which is a book about Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett, which that book is unique in that it's about only mostly two players and also is written retrospectively at what, you know, decades after, uh, the yeah, main it's relatively recent. Yeah. It came by, out in the, by Jonette Howard. Yeah. It came out in the, about 10 years ago, I want to say, I'm guessing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Rivals will be, the Rivals will be our third book and we'll do like i said we'll have some other interspersed things in here i think i don't know what order is going to publish on ncr and maybe before this episode actually i did an episode with uh guy brad hutchins who wrote a book about court siding in tennis game set cash uh which was another book i enjoyed recently and figured court siding was a fun hiatus diversion topic <laughs> uh, to get into the weeds a bit on uh so that will be up on the feed at some point yeah i just, don't mind that betters are losing shit ton of money right now by the way I just well, have to they're say. just not making money. I don't think they're losing right, money. But like I betting, mean, but well, betting, but yeah, but betting. No one's uh, making money. Bookmakers but... <laughs> are totally losing money. Yeah, there's nothing to bet on for sure. And they have to return all these bets they got on like who wins March Madness. They have to return all those bets. Uh, so yeah. Uh, yeah, they're losing money for sure. So yeah, this book. Yeah, a lot of people intend it's reflexively anti-gambling, which we talk about in the show uh, for good reasons um, that yeah. they are. And uh, I don't know how should we talk about that actually, but it's definitely talking about my article. I'll link the article I did on court siding and. And the episode, uh, in the episode, in that in that episode description, and uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll keep you posted. Yeah, no. But before we leave Venus Envy for good, though, yeah. uh, just wanted to go through some of the the tweets and emails oh, yeah, that you guys have sent through. Um, just about because it's a book club. Yeah. I mean, ideally, we are all talking about it, and um, I don't know. And also, if people have suggestions as to structure or how to do these, that would you know, um, enrich people, please feel free. We're just kind of flying by the seat of our pants uh, at the moment in terms of how to do uh, the book club, but we're open to suggestions. We got a tweet from Bridget Robinson who asks whether the WTA still has the list of players that get more money or something at a tournament, uh, the list that isn't necessarily based on tennis playing merit, but on public popularity of the player. If this is making any sense, please discuss. Yes, Bridget, we know what you're talking about. Um, so in Venus Envy, John does a great job of basically breaking down what was at the time uh, the WTA commitment list. And so as of the, the 2000 season, the way that it worked was there was this list of 20 players that was that um, and the list was generated basically by, I think, consultation with tournament directors, effectively, and sponsors as to like the 20 most marketable players, I guess, the, the players that they that the tournaments and sponsors like wanted to be a part of their events i think that the way they did it it was like the 16 top ranked players and then four wild cards and they ranked oh, the wild those, cards and then they ranked those 20 so like alexandra stevenson was in the oh, top okay. 20 even though she wasn't top 20 the rankings right. basically so basically that meant that obviously so and uh, based off of that 20 that top 20 commitment list um there was kind of bonus payments that were allotted to players who helped to like in other words take oklahoma as an example, because that's not like a mandatory event or whatever. If like a top 20 commitment list player agreed to play it, then they got a, a, a bit of a, a financial bonus to play it. Right. 
Am I explaining that right? Mm-hmm. I think I am. Yeah. So that no longer exists. Uh, Bridget, thank you for your question. As of December 31st, 2019, the list that did exist, which was put into place in 2008-2009 as part of the, the, the WTA roadmap, basically when premier mandatories, like the whole premier and international system was put in place, was a top 10 commitment list. So basically, if you finished a season ranked in the top 10, then you were now part of the top 10 commitment list. Those top 10 players had a certain, not mandatory, but they had a certain combination of events that if they played, so this is a combination of premier mandatory, um, premier five and premier events, that if they played, then at the end of that season, they would get a bonus from the WTA bonus pool. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of weird, right? So like if you finish like number 10 in 2018, then in 2019, if you played all of the all four premier mandatories, uh, four of the five premier fives or all five premier fives, uh, and I think like two premieres maybe, and also obviously the slams, if you did all that, then based on your ranking, you got a certain amount of money, which could range from, you know, half a million bucks, like whatever, hundred, hundred thousand, et cetera. I can show you. I can, the list is actually, you're yeah, right, the it's, it's all public. I'm yeah, not saying yeah. anything that's like, it's all in the rule book. Yeah. But read the rule book rule, folks. Yeah. Read the <laughs> has, rule book. Has your I do. I do. Uh, but that rule now is gone. So I actually wrote a long post about this and did a bunch of interviews with Steve Simon at the start of the year, because um, January 1st, the top 10 commitment rule was basically blown up. And now there are no commitment requirement specific to a segment of player. In other words, the argument was maybe that, okay, these rules require are only applied to the top 10 and the top 10 is the only group of players that is eligible for the year end bonus pool. That's not fair is the argument. So as of 2020, January 1st, 2020, the rule was basically obliterated to where the commitment rules now apply to everybody. So there isn't a, designation between type of like what your ranking is so if you qualify for a p5 and if you at the end of the year finish in the top 10 and you have now retroactively looking back on your season uh, as opposed to being paid in arrears but like looking back on your season you're like oh you satisfied the following requirements now you get a bonus so it's a little bit more of kind of it makes more sense like basically you finish a year you satisfy the requirements of that year then you get a bonus and there isn't pressure on you the next year to like play a bunch of events, even though your ranking basically fluctuates outside of the top 10, which was like a weird thing that was happening. You know, like, like I think Sloan actually talked very, very well on it in Brisbane. Yeah. I think you were there. I was there. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Like just about how like, very grateful for this change. Yeah. Like you finish top 10 and then you have all these requirements for the following year, but you might be a top 20 player or a top 30 player. And still be playing under top 10 requirements because your ranking has fluctuated and dropped. Like, that's not fair. And it's not fair to the tournament because now the tournament's like, we want a top 10 player, but now X player is no longer a top 10 player, but we have to, like, take her because under the rules at the end of the previous season, she was. Anyways, it's a lot simpler is what I'm saying. And the short answer to your question, Bridget, and I apologize for the very detailed explanation, is that no, the top 20 commitment list is no longer a thing, but... You know, it, it, it reflects, and if you listen to this answer in conjunction and alongside the podcast that we have with John, you'll kind of get a sense as to kind of how 
in a lot of ways in the last 20 years, how much the tour has evolved and how much the tour has matured into a far more professional organization with a far more professional and fair set of rules than what it had 20 years ago. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And, and you use the word arrears on this podcast, which I was super impressed by. So can I just say that I only used it because Steve used it? Um, <laughs> and I was and even when Steve said it, I was like, oh, dang, <laughs> CEO and chairman just said arrears. <laughs> it's a great word. It's for a great like, word. It's, it's a good word to know for crosswords because it's like very common letters. Uh, FYI. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of crosswords in quarantine. <laughs> um, I, yeah, it's, it's it could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> My times are getting really good. So, uh, yeah. So there we go. Um, and the other comments we got. From Allison, uh, she says she swore out loud when Martina Hingis said the most famous person she met was Donald Trump. It doesn't get much bigger than that, says Hingis. Um, <laughs> it, that is a thing. I mean, Mar- Donald Trump is all over this book and was, as I talk about in the piece I did for Racket on Money Feely, was like a very frequent peripheral figure on the sort of sidelines of women's tennis for like a decade or more. He was just around, hanging around women's tennis. Uh, glomming on it for more fame and exposure which you can never get enough of and still cannot get enough of and uh yeah and she also mentions that venus we talked about this a bit with john in the podcast but venus there was talking about her retiring at 19 which is the irony of venus willing to be the one who's gonna retire early in this book <laughs> venus is gonna is turning 40 this year i believe and shows no signs of slowing down or at least no signs of officially slowing down so and also, and, and also, Allison mentions, she asks, I wonder what Candace Cameron Bure, uh, who eventually, the Full House actress, who eventually <laughs> married, married Valerie Bure, uh, the brother of... Uh, Pavel Bure. Pa- yeah, Valerie. I'm not sure if there's a different male pronunciation of Valerie. But anyway, Valerie Bure uh, <laughs> thought of Anna Kornikova for the brief time they might have been potential sisters-in-law in waiting. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I'm sure... Anna I would Korn- watch that show. Oh my gosh. Talk about your Full House. That's Full House. Yeah. I would watch that. It is crazy, like, right, that, like, the way that Kornikova has managed to keep such a low profile. After being, like, all about exposure, she was really able to, like, flip the switch off and just, like, get privacy in this way that, like, well, but, so many celebrities don't. But this is the thing, though, it, and I think that this is clear in the book, and um, and I think that we talk about this a little bit with John in, in the follow-up podcast, but that... Anna Kornikova had agency here. She was, she was in, in full control. control. Yeah. She was in full control. She knew exactly what she was doing in terms of marketing herself as this, you know, uh, this cover girl, this, this, yeah, uh, all that. Uh, and so because of that, and there was, there was a, the thing about Anna that I think really pulled people in, specifically men, is that there wasn't an insecurity about it all. It didn't seem like it was driven by insecurity. It didn't seem that she was making all these decisions in terms of monetizing her looks and monetizing. It never seemed desperate. No, it never seemed desperate. Exactly right. Like, so, so that when it evaporates, right? Like, so she's what with Enrique Iglesias now and she's um, disappearing from public life, mother of three, et cetera, et cetera, that she doesn't need to be on Twitter FaceTiming fans. She doesn't need, she never needed your adoration. She just got it. And she got your money. And she managed it. Exactly. She like, she like converted your adoration into cash 
and she is laughing about it. Like, you know what I mean? And I respect the hell out of that. When I was going up to the U.S. Open in 2000, 2001, maybe 2002 also, um, and going to see the Williams Sisters in the finals, I had a classmate who every year would ask me to go to the U.S. Open bookstore and buy him a copy of the Anna Kornikova calendar, <laughs> which was always for sale there. And I dutifully did this. Um, and yeah, so she was like, but she was like, Monica, she was the most she, downloaded athlete. Yes. Like, she was the most popular athlete on the internet. She was, she was to be clear, she was the highest paid female athlete in the world at, for a time. People don't, I mean, you can mock it, I guess, but, like, respect the hustle. Yeah. And at the end of the day, and, like, I, as John mentions on the podcast, and as I've, I've said on Twitter a gazillion times, like, if you want somebody to give you the thesis on the relevance and importance and the foundational personality that is Anna Kornikova, go talk to Svetlana Kuznetsova. Like she will, def- she will absolutely lay out like how influential Anna Kornikova was to Russian tennis and to women's tennis overall. And in some ways, kind of men's tennis, because here was this Russian tennis player from Eastern Europe or from Russia who didn't win a title and was only winning doubles titles, I guess, at the time. And she was out earning all of your Grand Slam champions. Yeah. So pick it up, ATP. I mean, she changed the market for tennis. So, like, on some level, like, people need to stop, like, freaking making fun of her and using her as a punchline. And, like, re- which John says, like, in yeah. in the podcast. And, like, recognize that, like, Mama changed the game. <laughs> she did. And on that note, this episode of the Anna Kornikova <laughs> podcast... No, there's no challenges remaining. Wraps up the Venus Heavy discussion. I do want to spend some... Uh, well, thank you guys for listening, by the way, to this episode of No Challenges Remaining. If you want to follow along when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, I guess, if you still want to do that, facebook.com slash no challenges remaining. But really follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis and send us emails, questions, comments, whatever, no challenges remaining at gmail.com. And leave us reviews, please, on iTunes podcast app. Wherever you leave your reviews, it does help us a lot to get found by more listeners, which we appreciate. And and tell your friends, just like it's it's a you know during your next Zoom meeting or your next FaceTime with your friends or whatever's going on or your you know tennis team. Life is so weird. Chat, we'll get to that in a second. Um, just drop NCR. It's like, hey, go listen to No Challenge Remaining. It's great. And also we have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash No Challenge Remaining is our name there patreon.com slash no challenges remaining right okay patreon I, it's confusing getting all these right but that is correct there want to give a shout out to the people who have backed us on patreon since our last published episode actually just one new one james hindle thank you james and since it is actually our first episode of the month it's a chance for me to list off all the names of people who have backed us at the on tour level or higher on our patreon and those include Andrew, Andrew Eccles, Brett Halsey, Brian Rolick, Dermot Harkin, Erica Jane Glamgoals, Ava Marshalkova, Jillian Dobson, Greer Millard, Helene DeVitt, Jeremy Blackstone, John Fisher, Kate S., Lori Porter, Rumdwav Wong, Stephanie Chow, and the Body Serve Pop. Also, our Grand Slam backers. Chuang Nguyen, Jonathan Weinbaum, Liz Kennel, Betty, and Mary Carrillo, and our GOAT backer, J.O.D. Thank you very much to all of them. If you want to sign on to support us in April, we appreciate it. We are at patreon.com slash no challenges remaining once more. Thank you. 
we spent very little of uh, this podcast talking about how weird our lives are, Courtney. So how how are you doing uh, in uh, week three, I guess? And you've made it back since our listeners last heard you. You've made it back yes. to uh, back home. So how are things going with you? How, how How's your world? Uh, and talk about your journey home if you want to. Yeah, no, it, it's... I don't know. I mean, I don't feel like I'm saying anything different, anything new when I say like life is fucking weird right now. Like, so obviously I was down in LA. That was when I talked to you guys last. Um, and I was like basically self-isolating for about 10 to 11 or 12 days. Cause I was feeling ill and then I was feeling better. So, um, a week ago or like six days ago on Saturday, I flew back up to Northern California to San Francisco and just that whole process, like, it was really stressful, not because of traffic, not because of crowds, not because of anything, because when all of a sudden you're so aware that like any of the people that you see could be the person that kills you, Mm. like it's really weird. Like, it's just like, it's, you become so conscious of everything. And I had obviously gone to the airport and I hadn't eaten breakfast. And then my flight wasn't until three and I was like, Oh, I should go eat something. So I went to the place and, got you know sat down and you become you just become really aware of like what you're touching how clean things are why is that person sitting next to me when there's 20 other tables in this restaurant like you know all of that but I made it home which was great um and being home obviously is far superior than staying big shout out to the ace hotel in downtown LA um they were really great throughout all this and I know a lot of their branches are closing uh, at the moment, but the downtown LA one is still open, but they were really, really kind and very like flexible without everything. So much love to them. But, um, but yeah, no, so it's really good to be home. Life though is different. I mean, it's, it's funny because, uh, I hope my boss, well, I I don't think my boss will listen to this. We're two hours into this. I think your odds are good. Uh, I think it's pretty good. Sorry, Amy. But like, I usually, because of the nature of my job, right, is that I'm on the road. That's my job, which usually means that I'm outside of the time zones of specifically Florida, which is where WTA is headquarters, and then London, which is where our secondary office is headquartered. And so because of that, like, I usually don't – I mean, I get invites to conference calls, but, like, (laughs) I don't have to join them because it's like, oh, it's 3 o'clock in the morning in Doha, or oh, it's – you know, six o'clock in the morning in California and we're having this 9 a.m. call in, in, in New York or Florida or whatever. So I don't, I don't have to do a lot of times that sort of stuff. Now they know where you are. They know where I am. I have to be on these calls because like everybody's just like, I don't even know why anybody wants my opinion on anything, but I do. And I love it because I love my coworkers and it's great to talk to people but it's weird. Like, you know this. Like, you keep trying to plan things with me. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Because I actually weirdly work these, like, market hours of, like, working, like, 6 a.m. Pacific Coast time until, like, 3 p.m. Like, New- uh, California time. So, like, I kind of have to be on call during that time. And, like, I've been interviewing co- – I've been on calls with coaches and interviewing th- – it's just been way busier <laughs> than when I cover events. Or a different kind of busy, at least. Yeah. No, it's busier. <laughs> okay, come on. You're not having to do press conferences or like interviews with players or like watch matches or live blog or things. You're. It's not all bad. Come on now. It's not bad. It just 
don't know. It just feels different. I'm just saying. It's just like, it's not like, obviously, live blogging matches and watching matches and interviewing players and being on site, like, I, like that's the stuff that, like, I just never feel like I'm working, right? right. Like, that's just fun to me. Like, right. I just enjoy that. Um, and this just feels more like work. And that's where, like, I'm just like, ugh, like... I'm Paul Rudd in Wet Hot American Summer, like throwing away the fork. If anybody's ever seen that scene, like that's me, like every day right now. But that being said, everything's good, healthy. Like I'm re self isolating for 14 days because that's what we've been told to do because I was at the airport. So trying to maintain distance from family and from my parents and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't know. Life's weird. I think the weirdest thing is that we just don't know when we're going to get started again. That's the weird. Exactly. It's it's the lack of a finish line that's tough for everybody. Yeah. We just don't know. And like, and people ask me like, when will Tennis be back? And <sighs> I don't know. I mean, like, I, you, <laughs> I, that's my like most like pleasant way of answering that question. Really? Uh, I, yeah, just don't know. And so, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I'm different than you. I don't, I'm a freelancer and slash self-employed, which means I don't have conference calls, which is nice. Although I have like a lot of like high school friends and stuff like doing like FaceTime, like group things. Which Weren't we... you just on a Zoom? Yes. So I like... feel like you bailed on me for a Zoom. I've yet happen. to zoom. No, but like I've had so many dang zooms, and like some of them are like interesting, <laughs> and like and like the place I go to do trivia, like the the restaurant or bar or whatever you want to call it, that I do trivia at on Tuesday nights in DC. Like they did their trivia over Zoom this week. Like people are like still dedicated to it. So that part of that is fun, but also it's like a lot of like FaceTime, like it's like being on more than I'm used to being on in my yeah, in my at my desk in my in my apartment in my small apartment so it's yeah my sister called today and i was like can we just do this tomorrow i've talked to a lot of people today <laughs> like I, and she was and she actually felt the same way so about her it's own weird life, so. that's what i mean it's yeah. like i feel like you know i i just keep being on twitter and i see all these people being like oh i'm so bored and i'm so lonely and like i don't know what to do and i'm just like dude i'm exhausted like i feel like so much more is being asked of me um socially it's like just now different. it's just different and yeah, it's I guess like it's, it's a different kind of like and actually I saw a tweet from somebody which I related to like I'm feeling the same way about like making plans like now as I was before like I just canceled like a zoom and I feel so much better you know the same way people like <laughs> dread having to like go to like you yeah know, brunches every weekend or whatever with their friends or just introvert behaviors and now like introverts have to put up new different armor and and extroverts have to find new weapons so can I just say yeah on behalf of all introverts you are their queen I am their queen it's so messed up because, like, even nor- in normal life, right, like, non-quarantine, everybody is healthy, no virus life. The entire world is built on the values of extroverts. What is valued? People who are outgoing, who are social, who are, like, interacting with people and going out and shaking hands and whatever. Extroversion And the values that an extra brings to the table are what is valued by the world. Now we're in quarantine land, which should be the domination of introverts, of which has been said I'm the queen. Mm -hmm. And still we're being freaking pulled out of our introverted bliss by extroversion. Look, I think that you underplay your dominance of this world. (laughs) in that there is no dominance no introverted people like are like you know i'm sure you would say like the ones who were like you know 
creative or whatever and like you know there's lots of space for that to to grow and you know as the queen but we're that considered you are, weird you know. extroverts are considered normal introverts are considered weird okay that's introverts fair. are orin on parks and rec like the weird vampire kid who just like shows up and they're like oh you're fucking weird like but he that's... is weird okay well you know what i don't need your value judgments he's just quiet and acts like a vampire but like <laughs> you're, oh, you're underplaying the second half of that sentence <laughs> but, fair enough. but i'm just saying i just feel like the whole world is like built on the values of extroverts because extroverts are the ones that have been deemed normal and cool and who succeed or and are the the, the like the models of success and introverts are freaking weird and now when introverts should be able to shine we're getting pulled into Zooms and being on conference calls. I bought, like, an actual conference call headset today. Oh, no. And also for your gaming. No, it's actually not for my gaming. I bought a separate one for the gaming. Only not because, like, I want... You want two headsets. <laughs> Dude, you have no idea how many headsets I have. But, like, the only reason I bought the gaming headset is not even because of the online gaming that I've been doing. It's just so freaking stupid, but you I have to do it. Uh, you don't. Do I have you... to do it to get certain money to play the solo side of the thing. But because I was, like, talking to Jimmy, photographer Jimmy, friend shout, of the pod. Shout out to Jimmy. Shout out to James. And he has a PS4, which I didn't realize before. And I was like, oh, dude, like, we should be gaming together. But I actually don't have a headset. So I bought a headset just so that I could game with, with James. So I'm going to do that. Speaking of James, mm. one other idea, which I've had, and I'm, I floated this to you and you were not into it, but it's not stopped me. <laughs> Story of my life is... <laughs> <laughs> It's true. It really is. Uh, is the um, Are you idea... twitching? Are you going to shout out your Twitch? No, I wasn't even going to mention that, but I am a Twitch. Twitch.tv slash Ben Rothenberg. You are a Twitcher. Streaming my tennis elbow. But no, this is actually about NCR Movie Club, which there are a ah. bunch of really mixed quality tennis movies available on, uh, mostly on YouTube, actually. There's a bunch of full versions. And Courtney, you innovator early on in the quarantine of throwing these netflix parties they were uh, fun these, right they were fun we can maybe do some more of of simultaneously watching it's tricky with netflix though because netflix has, a, has such that. different yeah like doing it with like it's amazing how little overlap there is between like australian netflix and u.s netflix like the majority of things do not overlap and so finding something that like enough people had we could all simul watch was tricky but but when we've landed on something, it's been awesome. It's been good. I've enjoyed it. So and glorious bastards, and that, then that cat, cat fight, fight movie was that cat wild. fight was fucking phenomenal, unbelievable. <laughs> we Everyone should watch what, what it. it. We can have like what is that? Stars and stripes forever, whatever the fight scene. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, stars and stripes forever is the outro to this episode. Bizarrely weird, very weird. But uh, anyway, but so d- maybe doing some of those for tennis. There's a bunch of tennis movies, including one that stars a young Mariska Hargitay, which I've always wanted to watch. The full version of it's on YouTube. Anyway, we can get into this. I uh, think it could be a fun activity and maybe an NCR group type bonding experience. If people are interested in that, let us know. I, I, I'm a little bit hesitant about watching shitty movies like, and just making fun of them. Like, I don't personally enjoy that. And tennis movies are notoriously bad. Like, there's literally only like three or four like Decent movies ones. that involve tennis that are that are good. Yeah. Like Brief Encounter, Strangers on a Train. Match Point. Match Point and like Rural Tenenbaums and that's only like a 30 second scene. <laughs> no, but a good scene. Every single other one is terrible. But if people are interested in it, then 
I'll do it. But I'll, okay, okay. I, you don't have to. You don't like I said. You don't have to be part of it. It's fine. It can just be this like is true. Me and like I'll have some like I'll bring on. I was talking to like Kiesa about coming on and doing the Mariska one. I was like, there's Ooh, a Mariska I movie. Like that. Mariska, would... yeah. Okay. Okay. That's a thought. Just a thought. Just a thought. Yeah. But uh, but yeah. No weird times. Let us know like what y'all are doing. Yeah. To... Reach out if we're here to we're here to Kill your chat time. and yeah. I know yeah. a lot of people are feeling. And as we talk about being introverts, a lot of people are feeling, you know, especially if you live alone somewhere, feeling isolated from the world. So we'll try to reach out and do more of these, yeah, communal type things, whether it's a book or a simul watch of a movie or something to try to do our very small, very, very almost minimal uh, contribution to extroversion. And also, yeah. And also I would say, because I've done this um, a bit is if there are people that you only know, like via social media, not only know via social media, I I should take that back because I, as an old person, which I am, I do find that reaching out to people that you only know on social is kind of weird. But if there are people that like, you know, but like you haven't seen in a while, but you kind of primarily know them just on social, like reach out to them and be like, Hey, like if, if you want to, like, let's have like a, you know, a dinner in Skype or drinks and Skype, like, you know, kind of like thing. And like, I know that, um, like I've reached out to the body serve boys cause I was supposed to see them in Miami and I loved catching up with them. And I was just like, yeah, I just want to know like what your lives are like, like right now. And so we're going to do that. And like oh, awesome. Renee, Renee and in, in Germany, another person who like, I love and adore, but like I haven't seen, and I only know through social and I'm like, Hey, like actually let's use this time to catch up. Like what's yeah. going on with your life? You know, like I, th- and Whenever I've suggested it, I think in both situations, I've been the one that's like suggested it. Like it's been like, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. Like, I feel like those are the interactions that I would really value. Like, I don't hesitate hopping on the phone with Ben. I'm just bitching and moaning about the shit that I don't want to (laughs) do, to be quite honest. Hey, Amy. Yeah. (laughs) I love talking to Amy. Amy knows because when she calls me, I pick up right away. It's just sometimes there are other things that I just don't want to be a part of. I just have no ideas. And also they're early. And I'm like, it's 6 a.m. on the Pacific Coast. Why are you making me be on this call? Um, justice for Courtney, honestly. I just, I will I'm say, not a morning person, but I live who, on the West Coast. As someone who doesn't have to do conference calls with the game sort of boss right now, which also involves not getting paid, I uh, should point out. Yeah, fair point. Like, I shouldn't complain. I get to uh, sleep aggressively right now. And just like <laughs> melatonin. I am out like at least like my like low – for the past like four nights, it's been like probably like ten and a half hours. Wow, Benji! It is, it is a lot. It is fantastic. I highly I'm recommend it to any, anybody I else. I love that for you as a quarantine strategy. Be unconscious. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> That's the thing. Like the funny thing though now is that like I actually have weekends. Yeah. Right, like in tennis, normally you don't have weekends. That's like the one thing that you give up if you work in tennis, right? Because that's semifinal and final. Yeah. So you've never had a weekend. So like I've busted my butt. Monday through Friday, and then tomorrow and Sunday, like, I actually can chill out, which is, like, amazing. Like, I'm going to get super drunk tonight. Fun. I'm going to go to sleep, and when I wake up is when I wake up. It's going to be great. I look forward to that for you. I don't want to stop I... you. I want you to get to it, like, <laughs> as soon as possible. It's it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Meanwhile, I'm, I mean, I'm reading Pam Shriver's book. I've got this nine point font single space situation going on with hard courts <laughs> it's great i promise no 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 i'm, I'm I've, I've read i've like read a third of it okay i just have to finish it but yeah it's been it's been pretty wild 
like is <laughs> my only super weird like um anecdote is like so last night uh i was working and then i was done and then i was playing some video games and then i watched fight club mm-hmm. uh which i hadn't watched in a while which i still really really like and actually like a lot more now that it's like divorced from when it came out in theaters and it was just a lot more complicated of a movie, like the discussion around it. But now when you watch it just as a movie, like I really, really like it anyways. So all that. Uh, and, and so I was like, Oh, I, um, on my way back from Australia, I bought this like great bottle of scotch or no from Doha, great bottle of scotch. Um, I'm going to crack that open, had some of that, had some more of that and had some more. Went to sleep knowing that it, I had to be up at 10 a.m. this morning for an interview. And uh, when I woke up, I woke up around 9, go back, to, go to my office, like fire up my computer. And I look. And based off of just piecing together the open tabs that I don't remember opening. <laughs> thank God that I don't think any of these transactions went through. But clearly <laughs> this is where my mind was. <laughs> <laughs> At some point, three drams of scotch in. What was it? I had uh, almost and had clearly been researching um, split mechanical keyboards. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Wow. Definitely was looking into that. Um, what else was happening? I nearly almost... Oh, I was also still... I mean, to, th- to be fair, I had been looking into this for a while, which is like getting a, a keyboard, a proper piano keyboard. So like relearn piano. I, I do want one of those actually. I I lost my mine in my parents' basement flooded. I would have yeah. liked that back. I, I would have enjoyed that oh, as a quarantine I that. toy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's good because like I had one when I was still a lawyer and then I think when I moved home, I sold it and I kind of just want to buy the same one because I liked it. So yeah. that was also an open tab. And like, I think when I sent that, when you texted me last night being like, yo, did you log into our NCR account? Like, I definitely was drunk when I responded to you. I was like, yeah, no, that was me. Absolutely. Which I was. You did a Patreon post about, I, I did. about stationary or something. I haven't even, I've been afraid to look at it, but it's about stationary. Don't look at it. But I did that post. I scheduled it. I don't remember writing it. But oh, I do remember God. the intention. And the intention is pure and true. If you're a Patreon follower, I won't tell you what that post is. But it's it's a thing that most people have responded to well. Um, but if you sign up to our Patreon, you'll be able to see what I've offered. Oh boy. And drunk Courtney's offering. Yeah. You know, that's good. Yeah. Good to know. It was just, no, I, the only thing that I bought, which was, I needed, and it's actually one of my 10 pantry items to your previous, uh, Mm. previous thing is I was, we were running out of, uh, peppercorns. And so I went on Amazon and bought peppercorns. And I bought a pound of peppercorns. Wow. Which I only, re- which I only realized days later <laughs> was a lot. Peppercorns <laughs> are very light, Ben. They are light. <laughs> so a pound will be – there was a better deal if you bought more. So, I mean, I uh, I bought a pound of peppercorns, which I hopefully will last me through the rest of at least this decade. I should hope so. I mean, I yeah. don't think that you need that much pepper ground pepper uh, you, anyway. ne- you never you honestly you never know it's true this is true yeah no we're all we're all animals man like that's that's where things are at right now decisions are being made we're all thinking that we're surviving but things are yeah. weird so far so good i do feel like i've kind of survived round one um so that's nice um but yeah it's just a weird time you never know 
you just yeah you just you just yeah we don't know when how this is how this is going to play out in all sorts of ways we do yeah. not know so that part's not fun but uh hope everybody in there's out there's taking care of themselves as best they can hang in there and folks not, and, mm-hmm. and, and not being hard on themselves either exactly if you're feeling like if you're feeling like oh man i'm you know i've been in, inside for three weeks in my apartment still a mess or oh i'm not getting outside enough or oh i promised i would do duolingo and learn japanese and i'm not doing that like don't so what kiss it's fine you know so what just who like, cares so what who cares it's fine <laughs> so just <laughs> just uh as fred arbison would say enjoy Behar's voice so uh <laughs> Or, yeah, actually, that's more Bronx Beat. Yeah, Bronx Beat. Anyway, all that is to say, I've been talking too long. (laughs) Other people get back to their, uh, yeah, be kind to yourselves. Be be kind to each other. Be kind to yourselves. We'll get through it. And if there's any way that the ridiculousness that is Ben and I can can help in any way, definitely tweet us and email us or respond to the Patreon and, and let us know. If there's, I mean, shit, we got nothing but time outside of my weird very busy working hours but um i tell you that's a curveball (laughs) it's a definite curveball for all of us um but if there's anything that we can help with we're happy to do it and uh, i know ben's still working super hard on the podcast and and lining up guests and talking with people and stuff like that we're all we're all trying to do the best we can and i think that one of the biggest takeaways is things are not normal right now and and don't I, i thought about that a little bit like kind of watching tonight like the serena venus 2003 match on espn and you know just even just little things like you know tennis channel re-airing 2019 miami and you know uh just a, where i just like okay yeah but things are not normal right now i absolutely understand why people are doing it i mean there are business interests and you know you can't just shut down a network um and not have content to air but like also us as people living in the world like it's okay to recognize that things are really fucked up right now and it's okay to not be okay exactly and so if we can as i keep saying as i said in the patreon post like i don't think the quote-unquote they are gonna help us so we gotta help each other so if there's any way that ncr can help like definitely let us know we'll do our best and with that we hope all you guys out there are doing well and we'll see you next time. So po- schedule programming note to finish. Next, we'll have the episode with uh, John Wertheim talking about Venus Envy. And then soon coming up uh, will be a to-be-determined based on Courtney's very busy schedule suddenly uh, <laughs> with uh, with TikTok queen herself, Christiane. She's a celebrity. She is. I'm she is shocked kinda, she was able to fit us into her schedule. Kind of winning the game on the, on the quarantine social life. I think her and Stan are the ones who are doing... And Stan's doing a lot. Stan is doing very involved social media and also like Instagram living for hours on end with Ben Pair, which is in French, so I don't understand it that well enough to watch it, but it's a lot. So <laughs> people have their own ways. Every, That's what I'm saying. Everybody's got their thing. But we're all everybody's we're all making do. Thing. All making do. And with that, uh, see you guys later. Bye. Ciao.